just two things we're going to look at, the deliverance that God offers and the response He requires. Okay, first, the deliverance that God offers. Um, there are two things to think about when we're thinking about um, authority in structures and institutions, like the government or the state government, the uh, law enforcement. One is that God has instituted and ordained them. You hear princes mentioned in the psalm. That could be kings or governors or judges. But they are necessary and they are noble, and God has instituted them. And he is pleased with that institution. And then he calls his people to honor them. Now, I want to read a passage to you from the Apostle Peter. Some of you are familiar with it. But what's striking about it is he wrote it during the time where Domitian was emperor of Rome. And if you know anything about that history, you know that he was someone that didn't shrink back from murdering his own senators, and he also was someone that persecuted Christians. So Peter is writing this while Christians are being persecuted by the very emperors talking about. And this is what he says. Be subject for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So here God calls us, even in the chaos and injustice of a world, to still honor what he has commissioned for good. Yet, honoring someone doesn't mean leaving them without critique and review. The apostles themselves said at one point, right, we must obey God rather than men. Honoring men does not mean that we blindly or unconditionally just submit to whatever is before us. It says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man whom, whom there is no salvation. And this applies to all authority, and it really comes under the commandment of honor your father and mother. That's how the theologians used to deal with the idea of authority in all realms. And it's important for us to remember during, uh, whether it's political conventions coming up or an election year, right, in this year that's caused a lot of angst for people, the greatest gift that Christians could give to people is their calm, is their peace, their belief that God, even now, is reigning on his throne, and through the complexities and even the evil, he'll hijack the evil and use it for his purposes. But Christians, the gift they can give to society in that moment is their trust and their peace and their calm. It's not the only gift, but it's one gift. But there's something broader here, too, and that is this idea of princes could be translated in a modern way, and this comes from a revered Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner. He says a modern translation could be the influential. Do not trust in the influential. Now, if I asked you um, who, the who the influential is in your life, you might think of the boss you're trying to win favor with so you can advance. You might be thinking of the uh, political leader that might be favorable to your cause. You might be thinking of the teacher or professor you want to like you so you can do better grades. You might be thinking of the person that really kind of controls the social circle that you want to get into. I mean, we all know there are people of influence. 
But the question I'd like you to think about, and you might need some time to think about this, is right now, the number one problem you're facing, who is the human influencer that you most desire to be successful with? I don't know what you're struggling right now, whether it's work, social, medical, whatever it is, who is that person that you find yourself fixated on because you think, if I could get to them, if I could get to that influencer, that would make all the difference? Because that's what it was like for the psalmist as he wrote this. I was thinking about, uh, this is sort of a light example, but in my own life, uh, some of you know that my uh, uh, that uh, part of my life is music. That's what I did before I went into the ministry. I still do it gladly. And a couple years ago, um, I felt like, you know, I would like to try to write some songs and see if there's any chance they could get published. See if they could get published. And so, you know, I began to write some songs, and a friend of mine who's a pastor um, knew uh, an elder in another PCA church who was a songwriter in Nashville and a celebrated songwriter. In fact, that year his song um, was up for one of the best songs, uh, The House That Built Me, Grammy. Some of you know that. He also wrote two songs on Lady Antebellum's album that, you know, just went platinum. So this was a guy that was really a great songwriter. And, um, you know, talk about me having the option to meet an influencer, right? And so I sent him a song or two, and he wrote back an encouraging email and said, hey, I like what I hear, you know, maybe when you come into town we can meet. So went to Nashville about a year later, and uh, he was so kind to have lunch with me and then tour me around this, um, you know, record executive's office and things like that. So we're sitting there, and he begins to share his story. And as he shares that story, he goes, you know, there was a time in my life where I so wanted to uh, write songs and be accepted, it was like it was this golden idol that was standing right before me. It was the thing I was fixated on, and God smashed it. He just broke it. And I knew what he was doing. He was basically trying to deliver me from putting my trust in princes. <laughs> he was trying to deliver me from this hope where he just basically said, you need to examine whether this is an idol in your life. I've thought about it. I've, I've actually uh, sent him little gifts throughout the years saying, thank you. Thank you for opening your heart to me in your life. I don't know what deliverer you have right now, but think about it. Think about it, because there's two things God would want you to know. One is that the deliverance of men is temporary. Uh, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. Now, there's a word play going on in the original Hebrew between the word man and the word earth. They sound alike. And the writer's doing a little play on words going, we are very dust-oriented. We were very dusty. We are very temporal. From dust to dust, we return, right? The greatest influencer that you've met and are after will grow old, right? They will die. They will lose their position. They will no longer be able to help you. That greatest influencer you're thinking about. And it's not a surprise to God that that's the case. Because God raises up people of influence, he brings them down. When we, and here's what happens. When we attach ourselves to someone like that, when that person goes down and no longer functions, we, we put ourselves in a place where we can't move forward. 
because we really have attached our deliverance to a particular person. Maybe it's a political leader, you know, maybe it's a social leader, but we just can't seem to move on. We don't expect God to be doing new work. But they are temporary, and like Moses sang in his Song of Moses, uh, when they were delivered from the Egyptians, whom they were enslaved by, and they go through the Red Sea, he said, I saw Pharaoh sink like lead. I saw him sink like lead in the ocean. This man that was so powerful, this man that was so oppressive for 400 years, this, you know, monarchy where they felt like we're never going to get out from under this thing, sunk like lead in a moment. The Lord is the forever deliverer. This is what the psalmist is saying. The Lord will reign forever. And you can hear testimony and testimony over the ages of time throughout the world of Christians that have experienced this, whether it was during World War II and they were fighting against dictators and regimes, the Lord was faithful. Whether it's during the civil rights movement, Christians would say the Lord was faithful to us. And he is the faithful deliverer now. This is the secret that those people of faith have gotten in on. No matter what the climate, no matter what the circumstance, they have found God to be faithful. They have found him to be a deliverer. You and I won't see that if we're too focused on the other stuff. But let me move to the next thing. The deliverance of men is not only temporary, it's biased. In verse 6 through 9, God talks about the fact he executes justice, watches over sojourners, upholds the widow and the fatherless, and that, that is set in contrast to the earthly princes. So what the writer's doing is saying, unlike the earthly princes who do not do those things for the fatherless and the weak and the orphan, God is the one that stands up and doesn't back up. In the ancient day, it was the sojourner, the foreigner, the widow, the orphan. It's like that today. Those were the people that lacked networks. They lack connections. Washington, D.C. thrives off of who you know and the connections you have. These are the things, right, when we're at cocktail parties and we're talking to a friend, immediately we'll interrupt the conversation if we can see someone that will help us. These are the people that fill our minds. D.C. is all about connections and networks. And many of us, because no control of ourselves, how we were born, perhaps the race we were born, where we were born into, we were privy to many networks, access to many things. But there is a group of people that don't experience that, the psalmist would say. They don't have influencers on their side. In a similar way that those in this country of minority culture or those that grind it out in the lower class in poverty would say, where's my network, where's my influencer? Now, most people that are majority culture, this country, country white, are unaware of the networks that they have. And I say that obviously as a white person. They're unaware of the networks and the assets and the connections that they have. Uh, a couple years ago, our elders read a helpful article, and it's a well-known article, some of you probably read it, by Peggy McIntosh on white privilege. And we read about this on our session retreat and just talked about it. And she lists many, many things, but listen just to a few things. And, and this is a woman who is white, and teaches at Wellesley, an older professor. She says, I can go shopping alone most of the time, pretty well assured that I will not be followed or harassed. I can be pretty sure that if I ask to talk to the person in charge, I will be facing a person of my race. 
If a traffic cop pulls me over or if the IRS audits my tax return, I can be sure I haven't been singled out because of my race. I can criticize our government and talk about how much I fear its policies and behavior without being seen as a cultural outsider. I mean, she just goes on and on. When I read through that list, I, I felt like it was just like, you know, revealing my life to me, those hidden networks. Uh, our brother, Pastor Duke Kwan, gave a wonderful address to a group of pastors, and the phrase he talked about is, you know, in America there has been a long time a white normativity, but we want a multicultural normativity. Amen? A multicultural normativity, because that's the normativity of God's kingdom. That's the kingdom of every tribe, tongue, and race. In the earlier gospel in the first century, see, what was happening is there had been Israel, Jewish normativity, and God always meant that to be broken out. And there was this fight happening where those that were in that majority culture said, no, we, will, we won't get up our, give up our cultural ascendancy. We won't give up our cultural power. It became a conflict about the gospel because it is about the gospel. It is about the deliverance that I trust in, right? If I can't let go of my culture, my culture is my deliverer. If I can't get rid of, you know, if my race is my hope and my power or my social class, my education, it's my deliverer. And so, in our country, there are many people that are well aware that they do not have earthly deliverers. This is one of the reasons I think, uh, and I've said this before, Jesus was so well received by the poor, not because they weren't educated, not because they just would accept anything. That's an insult. That's a comment made by modern elite people. The reason why they were open to Jesus was because they knew what it was like to navigate life without networks and connections and perks. They were open to God coming in that. You know, in our country, of course, this is, you know, not news. Uh, Pew Research 27% of white people believe our courts operate fairly. 68% of black people believe they operate unfairly. Uh, a Gallup poll, a fourth, of, a fourth of black men between 18 and 34 in the last 30 days say that they have been harassed and have had unfair experience with the police officers. The Lord is an unbiased deliverer. He's the only unbiased deliverer. And I've already said at the beginning, he has instituted government right? He's instituted those in authority, and we need to bless him for that, and we need to bless every good, honest, noble person striving for justice and authority out on the streets. You know, this is the poll that the world will fall into, demonize one, demonize the other. Christians have God's light, so they don't need to go to that place. They can affirm and say, yes, I can honor this, but I must honor this as well. And there is no way to read the pages of this book the pages of this faith, and I will tell you, for years I read it and did not see it. For years I read it, I studied it, I went to seminary and studied it. And I feel like it's still progressive revelation. It was like, you know, verses that weren't there jumped out of me. Because it's this book and this God that says, I am the deliverer. Listen. In Proverbs, a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Leviticus 19, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Isaiah 58, and God said this to covenant Israel. This was his people that he was talking to. He wasn't talking to those outsiders. He was talking to his community who he had given the laws to about justice. 
but they were oppressing the poor, exploiting the weak, and God, but yet they were going about the religion. They were going to worship. You know, we'd say they were going to community group. They were fasting. They were doing all these things, and God said this, Is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And then, of course, in the book of James, New Testament, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, those that were doing systematic exploitation. I will tell you, for years, as a white person, I understood racism in a personal idea, just personal bias. But it was only years later, talking to brothers and sisters of color, uh, reading the Scripture, growing that the systemic side of these things, the systemic is what's represented in the Scripture. Yes, it talks about personal bias, but it's regularly talking about systemic oppression. And then we have in Isaiah 61 what you find reflected in this psalm. And the reason I mention it is because it was in the first sermon that Jesus preached, we have recorded, in the book of Luke, where Jesus, you know, it's his coming out party. And what he does, he takes up the words of Isaiah and says, you know, the Spirit is upon me to preach good news, open the eyes of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. There was a moment in John the Baptist's faith where he doubted. He was in prison. It was before he was martyred. He doubted. He wondered if Christ was the Messiah and has sent a couple followers to Jesus. And Jesus, this was the proof he gave. Does John want to really know if I'm the Messiah? The lame walk and the poor have good news preached to them. How would he know that the Messiah really came because justice came? How would he know that the deliverer of God, the Messiah came, really came? Because, you know, the, those issues that, for those that are not networked and those who are not connected were being addressed by the Son of God. These were the things that God had his eye on. Jesus, the Messiah King, is the one that had authority in heaven and on earth. And the way he sought to display his authority were for those that had no networks and connections. Now, that wasn't his ultimate goal, right? Because you can set people up in life. There are a lot of rich, wealthy, elite people that are lost because their deliverer is those things I just mentioned. And Jesus had a lot of people that loved to get a miracle done and a lot of food and didn't care about knowing God in the deeper place. So he came to deliver from the inside out. He died to set people free in the poverty of their spirit, but also to advocate for the poverty that they lived in, both in. And so, you and I understand that the deliverer we seek leads us to two conclusions. One, that no follower of Jesus Christ, no Christian, cannot also be an advocate for justice. It's impossible to be a Christian and not be an advocate for justice because this is what you find the nature of our God is we're studying the attribute and character of God. And this is God's attribute as it runs through. But also, as Jesus said, the sign of the Spirit of God filling you and I, the sign of the Holy Spirit filling you and I, is that work of justice that Jesus talked about. There's lots of ways that we talk about. Now, it's not the only sign, but there are ways that Christians will talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, I was really praising God. It was great, or I got a lot of good insights, or I had a great prayer time. The question, though, is you look at your life and go, am I advocating for those without those connections and relationships? Now, 
All of us at this point, maybe not all of us, but I, whenever I read these passages, you know, I just feel so small. I see what the Lord requires. I see my idols of comfort, my idols to just, you know, want to have my little hobbit hole not disturbed, right? These things. But this is where we ought to take hope. You know, the name that's mentioned in this psalm, the name that's mentioned, the God of Jacob. Now, some of you know who Jacob was. Jacob was a deceiver and a schemer. A deceiver and a schemer. And why would God bring that up? Because Jacob was the example of the way God loves and transforms people. And so this is the God, right? This is what he's doing in our community. This is what he's done in my life. He's doing in your life. The God that loves to transform people. But that's the only way that transformation is going to happen. The kind of transformation that we need because the problems outside are exhausting and despairing. And they're not getting any better. They're not getting any better. I'm not trying to be a pessimist here. I'm an optimist about the kingdom of God. But there has to be a deeper work of transformation. The thing that cut things loose in that first century was the gospel and coming to know the deliverer and the liberator. Because what happens is you change from the inside out. And you see things not just through your culture. You see things through the eyes of God. This is the kind of change that he brings to us. But lastly, let me hit to the response he requires to close. Let me say two things. One is we're called to make him our first hope. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. This week I read a quote that was so timely for this passage, and it struck me because I challenged the way I think about hope. This is what he wrote. Hope isn't a thing. Hope isn't a set of circumstances. Hope isn't first a set of ideas. Hope is a person, and his name is Jesus. He came to earth to face what you face and defeat what defeats you so that you would have hope. Your salvation means that you are now in a personal relationship with the one who is hope. You don't have a hope problem. You don't have a hope problem. You have been given hope that is both real and constant. The issue is whether you see it. That was a word that I needed to hear. We don't, as the people of God, have a hope problem. We don't. We don't have a power problem. We don't have a strength problem. We don't have a grace problem. Our challenge is, do we see it? This is why the Apostle Paul prays in the book of Ephesians, says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the hope to which he has called you. And then he says, the glorious riches of the saints working together, right? Riches, treasure, us working together with God's people and those that want to work with God's people for justice and mercy. It's a treasure. But lastly, the immeasurable power of him who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. The problem is you and I need to see that, and right now we really, really, really need to see it. We need to labor to see it because it's hard to see it. And I say that humbly uh, because uh, my brothers and sisters of color that have been laboring for decades and decades and decades and decades, I pray for their endurance because of their struggle. But it's our struggle. This week I was uh, reading uh, the Facebook page of a pastor 
uh, African-American pastor in our denomination, a friend. Actually, he's been here before and has uh, ministered to us, Lance Lewis. And uh, this is what he wrote, thinking through the recent killings of black men by police, I once again grapple with feelings of grief, anger, frustration, and even some despair. My thoughts also turn to the many mothers I know, including my wife, my sister, those at church, and so many others I know. Mothers who love, laugh, teach, correct, and encourage their sons. Mothers who smile widely at them as they leave for school, work, or play. And yet through that smile, through that smile, silently pray, Lord, please keep my son safe. Lord, please keep my son safe. This is a prayer that um, this brother should not pray alone. It's a prayer all of us should pray for our children. But this is what it means for you and I to be transformed by God, that we are then reminding one another we have a first hope when it's hard to find hope. But lastly, and you know, let me say this on the transformation front. I, I wish, I was just beginning to think about, you know, the way God changes people, the way he changes people. And I, this is a testimony of my own life, but, you know, I, I, uh, some of you uh, may, may know the story of Tom Terrence, who's local. You know, Tom used to be president of the C.S. Lewis Institute. Uh, Tom, as well, is, um, uh, was a pastor, disciples. Many of you have been taught by him, discipled by him. Uh, and some of you may know, but not all of you, that Tom was on the most wanted list as a white supremacist in the 60s. He was uh, about the business of shooting and bombing. Um, the FBI hunted him down. He nearly died once in a firefight, escaped again, nearly died again. <laughs> It was in prison where he came to know God, Christ. It was such an incredible story of transformation. And I was once having lunch with Tom, and uh, he just said, and he, he never explicitly, you know, you have to sort of pull the story out of him. But uh, I knew enough that when he said to me, um, you know, there was a time when I had some time on my hands, and I spent some time seeking the Lord, and I was like, I think I know what he's referring to. Um, great transformation, right? God takes slave traders and makes them hymn writers. Amazing grace. This is what he does. But there also has to be a determination, a determination to praise God. The, the, the psalmist says, I will praise the Lord. One translation says, I mean to praise him. I mean to praise the Lord. Intentional praise. Now, I don't know about you, but my emotional life with God is like my emotional life when I was in junior high, right? It's just kind of like, you know, however I, whatever happened that day is how I felt. In fact, I have a friend of mine who's actually here tonight say, you know, I don't think we mature that far behind junior high. And I said, you're probably right. Not a whole lot past it. But anyway, you know, this idea that if things go well, me and God are doing well, you know, there's this not an intentionality. We're just sort of floating along. And our praise. And, I, and I've mentioned before, I've got this neighbor, Mr. Outlaw, and he just does not let me off the hook. I go to get my packages from him, and, you know, I try to slip in a little whining and complaining. He goes, how you doing? I go, well, I'll tell you, man, I'm tired. I walked a lot today. He goes, well, thank you, God, you have legs. 
You know, and then I'll say, well, you know, how you doing? Well, you know, my honeydew list is long today. I'm not going to be getting all. He said, well, thank you, God, you got a honey. You know, thank you, God. Yeah, he just does not let me get off complaining. And what he's getting at is intentional praise. Now, this is challenging this week. What does it look like to intentionally praise God this week? I'll leave it to you to think about. But we must praise him. We must hope and we must praise him because God is our deliverer. He is our hope. He is our praise. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are our hope and our praise. We thank you that you are an unrelenting advocate of justice. We thank you that you have never forsaken your people. We pray, O Lord, for our nation. We plead for our nation. We we plead regarding the scourge of racism. We we plead regarding um, the evil of unjust force whenever it's used. Lord, we pray for our law enforcement, that you would protect them and give them hope. We pray, Lord, that you would thwart those that are committed to injustice and bless those that are committed to justice. And we pray for those that live every day under the weight of oppression, that you would be their strength, Lord, but your church would be their strength as well and their hope. In Christ's name, amen.